Tonight I want to talk about emptiness and compassion. And as we've been talking about the wisdom of non-clinging, or apparently, as Joseph has been saying, undistracted awareness, <laughs> and the qualities, I mean, it's hard to talk about qualities as something that doesn't have qualities, but we have to use words. But for example, the, just an undistracted awareness, Undistracted awareness has the quality of emptiness in that in the simple hearing of that, you couldn't really, if it's completely undistracted with that hearing, couldn't really say what was ear, what's the ear canal, what's the bell, what's the consciousness, what was me ringing it? What was the action? There's just the purity of the experience, you know? It all comes together. You can't say anything is self-existence in that. So emptiness, which also has the quality of spontaneous knowing, of cognizance, in that that sound was heard spontaneously. You don't plan ahead. You don't have to, you know, figure it out in three minutes, there's going to be a sound and I have to organize and control, you know, undistracted awareness so I'll be able to hear the sound and not confuse it with seeing. It just, <laughs> right? And it always works, doesn't it? When we're undistracted, it's perfectly known. That's the quality. So emptiness and cognizance. Spontaneous knowing. These are two qualities. But the third quality that we need to, when we're conceptualizing, that rounds out, that really makes um, undistracted awareness complete, so to speak, is that, well, the Tibetans put it in a way that's nice. It's ceaselessly responsive. Or you could call that compassion, or natural tenderness for life that is the natural manifestation of empty and spontaneous knowing, undistracted awareness. So sometimes when we have this idea of emptiness or anatta or no self or whatever is being uh, unattractive, or you know, kind of a cold void, kind of indifferent, or annihilation, even scary, or that sense of who wants if it's just seeing in the seeing, there's only the seeing. So you go outside and there's a beautiful sunset and it's seeing, seeing, you know, a kind of a disconnection from everything. And we think, well, who wants that? And that's missing the, the piece of the natural connectedness, isn't even really the right word, non-separation, uh, a tenderness, the um, spontaneous 
response, ceaselessly responsive, meaning whatever's appropriate, there's this natural response of awareness because of the fact of emptiness, not in spite of it. So in other words, the non-clinging doesn't open into a cold, indifferent void. Non-clinging is really, instead of the constriction of mind, of heart, of consciousness around me and mine, making you an other, leading to the response. It is ceaselessly responsive also. It just happens to be the ceaseless responses of fear and greed. But (laughs) the heart of non-clinging actually opens into, it releases the energy, uh, it encompasses everything. It's non-clinging opens us from the contraction into a spaciousness. Ajahn Sumedho, I've heard him refer to awareness as the point that includes, a spaciousness that encompasses everything, and in that, that releases our constricted kind of self-referencing into a natural tenderness for life, for beings, for a situation. A point that includes everything. Let me just give you two very simple examples from my own experience. How just the letting go of clinging moves from this fear or greed to the natural, inclusive tenderness that's also empty of self-referencing. One's a retreat example, very simple one, uh, where I was walking on a retreat here some years ago, uh, walking in the gym very early in the morning, which I loved to do before anybody was up. And deep into the retreat, just in that silence, in some nice samadhi state, walking, walking, lifting, moving, placing, and then at some point, deep in the walking, somebody you know, came out of their room, slammed the door, went into the bathroom, flushed the toilet, ran the water, came out, slammed the door, and the thought was, they are ruining my samadhi. And a little bit of aversion, and it was really that immediate self-referencing. You know, everything's about me, and the sense of separation, me and other, my samadhi, down the toilet. And... <laughs> That all happened pretty quickly, and the next moment, I was like, oh, this is, it wasn't even, these are thoughts I'm putting on it later. It wasn't really a thought at that time, but it was the sense of, that's just a concept. Me walking, they slamming, my samadhi being disturbed is just experiences arising in the space of awareness, basically. Walking, thinking, hearing, sensing, samadhi, no samadhi, whatever is happening is just the experience. There's nothing to separate out as me or my samadhi or how it should be or it got wrecked. That's all concepts. And that, just in that moment of letting go, basically, of clinging to me and my samadhi, there's no problem. And that tenderness for beings It's not I wanted to run up and kiss the foot of the person who who made the noise or something. It's just the whole sense of problem, of separation, of aversion, or even me and other goes away. 
There was no other response that needed to be made. But had there been one needed in that moment, if the person, say, needed help or something, that would have been the natural response without thought, without a sense of me doing something. Another non-retreat example, I was some years ago traveling in an Indian train in India uh, overnight, and I was in this sleeping compartment, second class, which is like four little benches, you could say, against the wall, the two walls of the compartment, and then a curtain pulled over it. And somehow I was in a compartment with three Indian men. I don't know why, but that's how it was. And so we're lying there on our little respective shelves, trying to sleep. And they weren't doing anything. They were just lying there. But I felt, you know, completely unsafe. And what are they doing in my compartment? You know, they're bothering me. Because they were just lying there staring at me. But <laughs> that's, not, that's not rude in India. I mean, that, that's just normal. You can't even consider it rude. I mean, I considered it rude because I didn't want it. But... They were just lying there. And so I spent, you know, the whole night and kind of, uh, you know, turned my face to the wall in my compartment. These guys are bothering me. And then in some point just before daylight, it suddenly occurred to me, the obvious, duh, you know, oh, this is not my compartment. This is our compartment. That's all I did. I didn't, like, leap up and have a group hug and say, I'm so glad you're here. I just just that shift. I see I have to bring the energy down here tonight. Just that shift in my mind is all that happened. I didn't actually act in any other way. But when the daylight came, and we all got up and you, you close the top and you sit down on the bottom ones. Then they brought in, of course, their whole families and cousins and kids and wives. And there were now 20 of us in the compartment. <laughs> but you could feel the whole energy change. They became really friendly. They were getting off at the stops and bringing me little snacks. Oh, please taste these special treats from our country. Please try our special tea. It was really lovely. It really completely changed. And all that shifted was that clinging in my mind of separation. You know. It's really quite powerful. Nyoshal Ken talked about describing the difference between the impure and the pure mind, the deluded mind, and the enlightened mind as being a difference of narrowness and openness. And in a deluded state, our mind is extremely narrow. The more constricted and narrow the mind, the more it thinks only of itself, disregarding the well-being, happiness, and suffering of others. And conversely, the enlightened Buddha is one who considers the the infinity of sentient beings rather than merely concerned with his own ego and individuality. Thus, the entire path from an ordinary being to Buddhahood is the gradual opening of the mind. And so, undistracted awareness, you could say, in that way of talking, is the mind 
heart that in that moment is completely open, free from self-referential clinging, naturally cognizant, naturally knowing, and ceaselessly responsive, compassion, tenderness for being. Now on a retreat, like here, where a great deal of our time is spent in the sitting, in the walking, even in moving around, in noticing very carefully all the arising and passing experiences, the mental states and the thoughts in particular, sensations and body, and a great deal of our formal training, so to speak, is just simply to watch everything come and go. It's really kind of an emphasis on the emptiness aspect. Right? Whatever comes, we just notice it, it goes. It doesn't matter how horrible the thought. It doesn't matter how beautiful, horrible emotions, beautiful emotions, you know. That's sometimes by really focusing so much on that aspect, that's how we could um, form a mistaken conception, so to speak, that emptiness means basically nothing matters. And that's how we can come out of a retreat thinking, well, if everything's empty, you know, either on the indifferent side, who cares about anything, or I can do whatever I want because it's all empty, right? Both of which are missing, are lacking the tenderness, the compassion, the metta aspect of non-separation. So how does... Our, our life here in the world doesn't matter. How does the Buddha talk about this movement, you could say, from how do we manifest from this view, this experience of all phenomena as being intrinsically empty and nothing really of more significance than another in the light of mindfulness to actually responding with word or action this ceaseless responsiveness, how do we respond? How does nothingness, emptiness, move into a connected response or action in life? And that's where this aspect that we talked about of intention comes in. This is where on the conceptual level, the Buddha just, he must have been so brilliant. I mean, how he could ever break all this stuff down and make his lists and all, but I mean, it's really amazing. So the Eightfold Path, which I'm, I'm not going to go into that much tonight, but just knowing that that's the basic path of practice, and the first stage of the path being wise understanding, really understanding the three characteristics, the Four Noble Truths, things as they are, that from that understanding, the next step is variously translated wise thought or wise intention or sometimes aspiration. The, as we know, the intention is just that subtle collected movement of mind, direction or inclination of mind that leads to action, right? And so that link, intention, is the link between understanding emptiness and compassionate response of word or body. And so this experience, 
this uh, recognition and understanding in ourselves of intention is so important. So we've talked a lot about intention. I don't think I have to describe it very much at all here. Just, as you know, saying that it's the, the, as if the collection of mental energy in a certain direction that gives rise to action. It's not us, of course. It's simply conditioned by causes. You know, as the body hurts, there's unpleasantness, there's aversion in the mind. It focuses the energy to move the arm, right? That's the intention, so you know that. And again, reminding you that the seed of karma, of action, the seed of wholesomeness or unwholesomeness, skillfulness or unskillfulness in an action, as the Buddha spoke of it, rests not in the result of the action, in how it looks, never mind in how other people perceive it, but that the seed of karma is in the intention that gives rise to that action. And that's always been so fascinating to me, given how much in the world we evaluate what we've done and what other people have done, their goodness or badness or skillfulness or whatever, by the results of the action. But that's the thing that's so out of our control, isn't it? The results of actions. Now, I'm not going to claim the intentions are all in our control either, but we can at least affect them through cultivation of mind. So, in fact, when we talk about skillful means here on the retreat, the whole crux, the whole kernel of skillful means is really about what's the mental factors, the mental states that give rise to the intention, that give rise to the action, that really determines whether it's skillful means or not. You know? So, for example, the same action that looks the same from the outside could be actually motivated by various intentions in different people or in different intentions in you in different days. You know? So, for example, taking a walk instead of going to a sitting. You all know, I don't have to tell you, do I? The range of possible motivations for that particular action. And probably many of you have gone through, actually acted on that from a range of motivations. And so where sometimes we'll beg somebody in an interview to not sit so much and take a walk, and the next person who walks in will say, stop taking so many walks, sit more, you know? And it's really about what are the conditions at the time, what would be skillful. So there's a piece of wisdom, a piece of experience you know. But really for you, it's what's the motivation. You're just a little bit bored, you want some entertainment, and it's basically craving. So you go for a walk. So then what that's doing is cultivating craving. You know? Wouldn't call it skillful means particularly. Other times, you just all you want to do is sit, but in the sitting, you're just sitting there, forcing with willpower, getting tighter and tighter and tighter, you know, and you're afraid not to sit. You know, it's basically self-hatred is taking you into the sitting. And in order not to sit and take a walk, it's really a letting go, 
of some ideas you have about yourself or perfection and just a willingness to be present in the moment seeing conditions as they are. Very different, yet the action can look the same. And it could be one way one day for you and completely different the next day. That's why when people say, I want to plan out how much to sleep. I want to plan out what time of every day I'm going to take my walk. You know, you can't. I mean, you can, but it's, you know, not looking at the fact that things are changing every day. Conditions are different every day. And it's the motivation arising in the moment. The mental factors giving rise to that particular intention. You can't hold on to yesterday's intention. You know, it's what's happening now. So, intention on that level of a momentary arising. And the good news, and what I want to talk about for the rest of the talk, the good news is that even if all you did was mindfulness practice, never mind metta karuna practice, that through wisdom, through the clear seeing, through our moment-to-moment mindfulness practice, the habits of our mind, the intentions that lead to speech and action that just naturally spring up when you're not sitting there trying to force it, but that just naturally spring up, they actually transform in the light of awareness and over our life of practice. And this is really one of the ways that the purification that we talk about, that you can actually notice it. That are, I'll call them bad habits, just to use local language, of greed and ill will, hatred, cruelty in response to pleasant, unpleasant. Those, say, natural bad habits do begin to transform in the light of our ongoing steady awareness to, well, the Buddha talked about three wise intentions. He has whole suttas about this. That greed naturally begins to transform to renunciation, to non-clinging, to generosity. Ill will naturally begins to transform to friendliness, connectedness, metta. And cruelty, real hatred, naturally transforms to compassion. And I'll just give you a very simple example before you start on that road of, yeah, right. Um, you just, I know this wouldn't happen here because everyone is so mindful and polite. But say you're standing in the food line. Say it's bagel day, which I'm really getting the drift is a very confused and stressful <laughs> time. So say it's bagel day breakfast, and there's the hubbub and the lines and all these decisions you have to make in in the cafeteria. And you're in line, and someone in a wave of confusion gets in line in front of you and doesn't even notice and goes. And they not only get in line in front of you, they get the last sesame bagel that you wanted. Now, our natural bad habit might be one of a range, but if you're the greed type, you could really, how can they take that away from me? If you're the aversive type, it's more lashing out, but you get the drift. Some kind of judgment, anger, you know, upsetness, blame, and then blaming yourself for feeling any of those things. 
And then you might find this could really happen. I know it really has happened in similar situations here where you're just standing, the whole thing happens. Maybe your mind starts with a judgment. Maybe it doesn't even go there. But instead of the mindfulness, you just really see the person. That spontaneous knowing without all the concepts in between. And in that seeing, you, just, you can feel either their confusion or their, they're just lost in a craving moment or their fear, or whatever. And in that feeling, seeing their pain, there's the natural response of tenderness. It's either either the renunciation, they need it more than I do, you know, today, or a kind of a compassion for, wow, that really must be a suffering state, you know, needing that bagel so much, or to be so confused. And then there's no patting yourself on the back, aren't I doing great? It's just a natural moment of purified intention. And I know you'll notice lots of these small moments as you go through the days here, just springing up spontaneously. Of course, we also can practice it, but I just want you to notice that this transformation does begin to happen naturally through mindfulness, through presence. When awareness is undistracted, this is the natural response. It's not something we have to plan or think about. Sometimes the second step of the Eightfold Path, Sama Samkapa, is translated as broader aspiration, which we talked about quite some in the first weeks of the retreat. The sense of um, Aspiration is intention, but as a more broad-based intention, kind of the overarching sense of what's really important to us or the direction we are wanting to go in, in our practice, in our life, in a day. And this sense of aspiration, which is often referred to as, as right intention as well, it could be in the small scale, where sometimes you have in the beginning of a walking, say, just have the aspiration at the beginning of the walking to really be as present as possible in this walking period. And have you noticed, when you do something like that, of course you can't control that you'll be present every moment, but it brings a certain um, resolution, which is one of the paramis, a certain focusing of dispersed energy a sense of more energetic commitment. So it could be as simple as the beginning of a sitting or a walking period, or coming to a retreat, or the overarching intention for what's really important to us in our life. Or if you have the view of eons and eons and endless lifetimes, as the Bodhisattva, who eventually became the Buddha did, you know, he made the aspiration however many, I think Rebecca said in one of her talk, eons and countless ages ago, um, as when he was a, an ascetic at the feet of the previous Buddha, to become a Buddha, to go through all these countless lifetimes of perfecting the paramis to become a Buddha. Now that's a vast, a vast aspiration, overarching intention. you know. But it can be very helpful to us 
to have a sense of how to use this broader aspiration in our practice, in our retreat, and in our life. As I say, what, what having um, the consciousness, the awareness in our heart, in our mind, of what's really important to us as an aspiration, that can serve the purpose on the moment-to-moment level of um, collecting our dispersed energy, of giving us a strength and a focus and a capacity to do things we wouldn't otherwise have thought possible. You know what I mean? You may have noticed that. I think probably you all have. You're still here, right? You've been through a lot that in, if you were just at home or didn't have a broader sense of purpose, whether it's freedom or whether it's just to get through the retreat, I don't know, but some broader sense keeps you here, even in the difficult times. You know, If it was just day to day, do I like it or not, you'd almost all be out of here by now. I read a book quite some years ago about, uh, it's called Life and Death in Shanghai, maybe some of you read it, about a woman, Chinese woman, and a middle class Chinese woman who lived in Shanghai during, and this was about her experience in the Cultural Revolution in the 70s, when the whole culture was kind of turned upside down, and mostly young people, uh, called the Red Guards, were kind of just terrorizing people, and anyone who was had any money or a connection with Westerners or was too bourgeois or the intelligentsia, many of them were just taken and put in jail and uh, accused of all kinds of things. So this woman was basically sort of like a middle-class housewife, you know, Chinese style, with no training for this at all, was thrown into jail and, and told that if she would just implicate uh, different people that she was given the name of, and you know, sign a confession, she would be released. And for some reason, her very deep commitment in her life was to honesty. And she refused to sign a confession because she said, I didn't do anything. I'm not going to confess to something I didn't do. And then when they wanted her to implicate other people, and even in very mild ways, she would refuse to do it for the same reason. You know, this isn't true. And they kept her in prison for, I don't know, five or six years, interrogated her frequently, treated her quite brutally, even some forms of physical torture, always giving her the opportunity to sign these confessions and get out, and she just wouldn't do it because of her commitment to honesty, which was just more important to her than anything. And you'd think living a life that she had led had given her no preparation to go through what she went through, you know. And she was, at least as she wrote the book, really gutsy, you know. She would stand up to the, to the guards and she didn't let herself get pushed around. Really quite amazing. And finally, she, I think, got cancer and they were going to let her out just because she was sick. And they were leading her out, about to release her. And just before they get to the final door, they said, just come in this room a minute. So just on your way out, just sign this, you know, it doesn't mean much. And she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. And they let her out anyway. And then she was writing this book from living in the States now. But that's, that was years ago I read that. And I've carried it with me since then. Um, 
really from the sense of how a really deeply held value or aspiration, really an intention, can give us a strength of purpose that can guide our actions and decisions. It really guides the motivation in the moment of our actions and decisions, right? It's not that we know what's going to come, but for her, honesty was so important that would guide her decisions. That would become her motivation for action. So noticing that in your Dharma practice, you know, how sometimes a strength comes, a sense of motivation that we're not even consciously aware of. You know, where suddenly you think it's time to go to bed, but something else, like the Dharma kind of takes over and says, I don't think so, and you start doing walking meditation. And then you think, well, I, I was going to bed now, and you get to the end. When I get, this happens to me all the time. When I get to the end of the row, I'm just going to keep walking, you know, until I get to my room. Get to the end of the row, and the body stops and turns around and goes back again. <laughs> nope. It's almost impersonal, but the sense of mm, the commitment to, at that point, just being awake becomes stronger. So notice that for yourself. And both here and in daily life, if a sense of what for you is a broader aspiration is either readily accessible, you already know it, or through a little reflection you can find that uh, deep motivation, aspiration um, for yourself, Personally, I find that really useful in difficult times or confusing times, on retreat, those times you just can't imagine how you're going to get through another day or why you would want to, or at home, that to recall, even if it's just in thought at first, and then let it settle into your heart, your deepest aspiration, it can be a great source of um, strength, and also of clarity, of collecting our dispersed energy. So we just don't go through life like a robot, like an automaton. Just, I feel like when I'm not paying attention, greed, hatred, and delusion are running the show. It's just like a robot, just responding out of habit. And when I can tune into a deep aspiration for me, it can redirect things. You know, it really gives you a strength and purpose. doesn't mean we have a clue how it's going to look, or how our life is going to look. I'm sure a woman in China didn't ever have any clue where her, her commitment to honesty would take her. When you read about Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, the, Bur- the leader of the Burmese democracy movement, you all know who she is, right? And how her path of turning into this symbol, kind of the rallying point, for all the democratic people in Burma, all the Burmese people who really are uh, wanting to liberate themselves from the horrific, really cruel military government that's in power, it was never her plan. But she's ended up being there most of the time under house arrest since 1988. She only went there in 88. She's Burmese, but she lived in, in England married to an English-Tibetan scholar, had two teenage boys, and she went back to Burma in 88 to take care of her mother, who was dying. 
And it just happened to be at the time that this, these vast pro-democracy riots broke out. And because of who she is, she's the daughter of um, a man who was the leader of the Burmese movement to free themselves from the British after World War II. And he was uh, really a martyr. He was killed right after they got their freedom. But because she was his daughter, she became the natural rallying point. And then through her own grace and wisdom and purity, she's been able to carry that. But anyway, she just happened to be there then. And because she became the focal point, she didn't feel she could leave. She was put under house arrest. And all these years, she's always been told she could leave at any time. But she knew she could never come back. By being there, she didn't get to see her children very much at all. And in the 10 years they've grown up, occasionally they could visit. Occasionally her husband could visit, but not much. And he he died of prostate cancer maybe two or three years ago, early in his 50s. And they didn't, the Burmese government didn't allow him to come visit, you know, after he was diagnosed. She knew he was going to die. She didn't leave. She's been through so much, really, health problems, and she just stays because she knows it's her commitment. But this is what she says. She said, it was never her life purpose to be the leader of the Burmese democracy movement. You know, that wasn't her motivation. She said, I suppose people think I'm extraordinary because I'm so simple they can't believe it. She said, I have very ordinary attitudes towards life. (laughs) I wish they were ordinary, but she said, if I think there's something I should do in the name of justice or in the name of love, then I'll do it. The motivation is its own reward. That's really, to me, that's so beautiful. And the sense of how powerful our aspiration is and how the aspiration really centers on our motivation moment to moment rather than on I'm going to get here and it's going to look like that you know so even if your aspiration is for full awakening and that's a beautiful aspiration and I just want to say by the way if you feel that you have some deep aspiration like that and it comes up honor it don't buy into that little personal identified mind that says, not possible for me. That really dishonors an aspiration that comes from the depth of truth, from our true nature. But whatever the aspiration, it functions by informing our moment-to-moment motivation, our moment-to-moment intention. It doesn't mean we know where it's going to go. So just like in practice, our aspiration, say, is to get enlightened. But if you're sitting here every moment thinking, now am I enlightened? How close am I to being enlightened? It doesn't really work too well, does it? I'm sure you've all tried that. It's like, okay, come back. The motivation is to be awake in this moment, what's happening in this moment. So the aspiration helps us align our intentions here and now. And, of course, what we discover in aligning or just noticing our motivations here and now is, yes, they do naturally transform, but I know what a lot of you are noticing at this point is what they're like prior to having naturally transformed, how much of 
the seemingly automatic intentions or responses that arise are those of confusion and greed and ill will and hatred. And that's okay, you know, to notice it. Don't let that discourage you because they do naturally transform in the noticing, just in the noticing. Remember that I, I, I know I read you this line before. It's one of my favorite from the suttas because I think it's so rich. That where the Buddha said, whatever one frequently thinks about, whatever one frequently dwells upon in the mind or the heart, that will become the inclination of the mind. So rather than getting discouraged because you're noticing how much your mind has been dwelling upon greed or hatred or delusion or pride or, you know, whatever the long list is. That's just, if you get discouraged, you're just still dwelling in the negative. Rather than that, to notice that when we are with mindfulness aware of the habit of mind of ill will, say, or greed, in that moment of sati, of mindfulness, of awareness, actually that unskillful habit of mind is not being reinforced. It's not being fed. That in that mindfulness, we're basically, it's disengaging from clinging to the greed or the aversion or the fear. And the mindfulness then is shifting the habit. It's shifting the inclination of mind to that of letting go, to that of seeing clearly, to that of non-hatred. And this is really important. Every single moment of mindfulness is having that effect of transforming the habitual inclinations or intentions that arise in the mind. And these habits of how we've spent our life, really, it's kind of both beautiful or a little scary to see how they can manifest as we get older if we really have lived a very deluded life. If that's where we've taken refuge, you know, if we've taken refuge in our life in ill will, well, what's going to come out, you know, at the end? You know, Chogim Trungpa's line when he's asked what's reborn and he says your bad habits. Or Ajahn Sumedho, I don't know if it was on one of the tapes, it's tricky to tell a story Ajahn Sumedho told because I'm not sure which tapes were playing here, but at a retreat I was sitting with him. He, he was talking about uh, visiting a nursing home in England and as you know, there's a whole range of people in nursing homes. You talked to a couple of elderly women who, who weren't really quite, I don't know if they had Alzheimer's or uh, just some kind of dementia, but not really quite there. But like the two of them, their, what was left really was their bad habits. And one woman, whatever you say to her, she'd just say, you're not going to get my money. You're not going to get my money. And the other one, and excuse my language, but this is what he said, whatever you say to her, she just goes, shit. She's just <laughs> shit. You know? 
I thought, whoa. (laughs) One does not want to discover that that's where one's taken refuge throughout (laughs) one's life. A little scary. On the other hand, and I, I, I don't think I've told this this retreat, but I've told it a lot before. Uh, maybe two, two and a half years ago at a large um, Buddhist teachers conference with Buddhist teachers, Asian and Western and all the different traditions, and the Dalai Lama was the main speaker and stuff. The thing that has stayed with me the most, I actually don't remember hardly anything the Dalai Lama said. I mean, he's far out and all. But what we really moved me was Mahagosananda, the Cambodian monk who's been a peace activist for many years, um, worked in the Cambodian refugee camps after the genocide and came back and taught metta and uh, has taught all over the world, led peace marches in Cambodia. And I, I actually don't know how he is now, but he was basically becoming senile at that point. And he was at the conference, and someone would have to was kind of designated part of each day to stay with him, just to make sure he stayed with us all and didn't wander off, you know. But what was so inspiring to me is that he would just be sitting there, and anyone who approached him out of, you know, two or three hundred people, as soon as you would get face-to-face with him, he would connect with you and just beam with metta, talk to you, why, or bow to you, bless you with metta, and it wasn't like a disconnected sense. It was totally connected. This man just beaming metta, that's where he took his refuge, you know, in life. It was deeply, deeply inspiring to me to think that what's going to be left when we go, nothing we have and none of our actions in the world, really, about who we've been, where our mind and heart has dwelt, you know, where we've taken refuge. And I want to emphasize again, yes, practicing metta and, lo- and compassion, that is very powerful ways of transforming our habits, our intentions. But s- also simple, clear, direct connection of mindfulness brings out the natural response of inclusion and compassion. Have to read this poem because I haven't read a Mary Oliver poem, and you have to read one before you're allowed to leave. <laughs> but actually, this was exactly what I'm saying about how simple, direct connection of awareness is all inclusive. In Singapore, in the airport, a darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the women's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there, washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it. Kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings, rivers are pleasant, and of course trees a waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. 
She smiled and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem, but first we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She is washing the tops of airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps, with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, but like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life. And I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen. But maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course it isn't. And neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth, the way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. And so simply by our willingness to be totally present, to pay attention without withholding, without judging, without prior concept, this transformation of habits of heart and mind takes place. And just from a simple moment of tenderness, through our continuing practice, I think it's something we can cultivate, but even just naturally, our, our aspiration and our sense of compassion really begins to move in the direction of the vastness of bodhicitta. The vastness of our practice at some point really does stop being just for ourselves and becomes a sense of wanting to awaken in order to help awaken all beings. And according to a talk I heard from the Dalai Lama, really, how does this bodhicitta develop? Just what I was saying. From deep insight into what suffering is, and guess how that arises? By focusing on our own experience. And then, as we focus on our own experience of suffering, the compassion strengthens with the sense of empathy and connectedness with all beings. And this just happens naturally, really. I mean, we can help it along, I'll admit, but we start where we are. That's why the difficult times in a retreat are so important. You know, and I, we say this over and over, and in the middle of it, you can't really get a sense of it because we're struggling so much. But the difficult times in retreat are really the places where we're getting that deep insight into suffering and that sense of empathy with all beings. It's so important to start where we are and to honor, to see how the most seemingly even trivial experience is transforming 
where we take refuge, how we live our life. One retreat that I was sitting with Sayada Upandita, um, I went into an interview with him, and I was in a very extremely heavy bout of self-judging, very you know negative, which I didn't tell him. You don't go in and give him the content of your thoughts. He's not interested. You just go in and report you know, what happens in the sitting. I noticed rising and falling. I felt these sensations and thought arise. I would note it. But he knows what's happening. It's really... It's really quite interesting. He's such a master. So he could tell that I was in this really vicious bout of self-judging and a lot of thinking. And he said to me, some people talk to themselves on retreat. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) And I said, yeah, yeah, I think I've noticed that. He says, well, it's supposed to be a silent retreat. People think he's not funny, but he can be really quite funny. And I said, yeah, I know. He said, well, which do you think is better, to talk to yourself or to talk to other yogis? And I said, well, that's true. Given the way I'm talking to myself, it would probably be better to talk to other yogis. They would never be so cruel. And it was very helpful, just pointing that out. Start where you are and how we meet the difficult experiences. I know I said this in a previous talk, so I'll just say, just again remind you that how we meet the difficulty is what's the creation of the new transforming the intentions. So, for example, all that vicious self-judging, that's the previous habit of my mind. That's old karma results coming up. When I can meet that just with simple awareness, that's the transformation. That's the cultivation of compassion and wisdom. It doesn't even mean that vicious self-judging stops, but that ability to recognize it is very different from, oh yeah, you're right, you are the worst person that ever walked the earth, or I should be past this by now, I shouldn't be having these thoughts by now, this just shows what a bad, you know, and then into the next spiral. Ah, self-judging is like this. I know when you guys come into interviews and we say that, and you, you kind of go out and go, that was really a big help. But <laughs> it's huge. Every moment of awareness like that is transforming the habits of mind. We just want too much too soon. You know, we're not willing to... How long have we been cultivating these bad habits? And just in this life, you know, one pales to think of it. So... Three months of cultivating wise intention, that's good, that's great. Luckily, wise intention, I think, is really stronger than our bad habits. So I don't think we have to cultivate, like, equal one moment of each for one moment, you know what I mean? But we do need to acknowledge it. There's a quotation from Gandhi I really like, where he said, almost everything you do will seem insignificant but it is very important that you do it. I think that's a great description of our practice here in the hall, but also in our life. Every moment of awareness, every moment of kindness, every moment of clear seeing may seem insignificant 
if we're looking to results, if we're looking to goals, but if we're just willing to be there in that moment for it, it's very important that we do it. And so we don't have to to think that we're cultivating bodhicitta, to think that we're transforming the habits of mind from confusion to non-clinging and compassion. We don't have to be, you know, the Dalai Lama or Gandhi. Just be willing to do each insignificant moment of attention. Start where we are. And then that ceaselessly responsive aspect of emptiness manifests itself effortlessly. It's not that then in life we have to think, what would be the appropriate compassionate response here? It just comes. So what one teacher I met once called doing the obvious. You know, you just do it because it's the obvious thing to do. Like um, once I heard an interview on public radio with uh, a professional basketball player, a young man in his first year, and so he was. To make the pros, you know, that's got to be really the high point of a young athlete's life. And he was having a good year, and they were interviewing him because his sister needed a kidney transplant. And if his, you know, if his blood type matched, he was going to give her his kidney. And the interview was kind of breathlessly interviewing him because that would mean the end of his professional basketball career, which I'm not sure why, but it would. And the interview was going... This is so amazing. You're willing to give up your basketball career, you know, on and on. And the guy was so cool. He just go, what are you talking about? My sister? She'll need a kidney or she'll die? I have two kidneys. It's a no-brainer, you know? It's <laughs> just doing the obvious. And he just wouldn't go there about how amazing he was or that there was even another thing to do. It's really quite... I wish I, I never caught his name, you know. It was really a beautiful thing, doing the obvious. And whether it's just, you know, picking up our foot and putting down the foot again, or giving a kidney, or just letting the person cut in line in front of you and have that sesame bagel and wishing them well, doing the obvious. I just want to end... Here it is. Something from Pema Chodron talking about bodhicitta. This bodhicitta, at the relative level, she calls noble heart bodhicitta. At the relative level, our noble heart is felt as kinship with all beings. At the absolute level, we experience it as groundlessness or open space. When we experience the soft spot of bodhicitta, it's like returning home. It's as if we had amnesia for a very long time and awakened to remember who we really are. The poet Rumi writes of night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it, a companionship of people willing to know their own fear. Whether it's in the small fears of a job interview or the unnameable terrors imposed by war, prejudice, and hatred. In the tenderness of the pain itself, 
night travelers discover the light of bodhicitta. And then just the simplicity of it. She says, bodhicitta is available in moments of caring for things. When we clean our glasses or brush our hair, it's available in moments of appreciation. When we notice the blue sky or pause and listen to the rain, it is available in moments of gratitude when we recall a kindness or recognize another person's courage. Whenever we let go of holding on to ourselves and look at the world around us, whenever we connect with sorrow, whenever we connect with joy, whenever we drop our resentment and complaint, in those moments, bodhicitta is here. Just doing the obvious. Let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.